Well, amen. I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad that you'll be a part of this conversation tonight as we look at the fourth chapter of Hebrews. And, you know, we've had many discussions along the way over the past several months in Hebrews just about the how this book is so amazing and wonderful, and it has the ability to be... Uh, unbelievably simplistic and then very complex at different times. But I will say that we're in for a particular challenge this evening. As I was, I've been thinking about this and working on this for quite some time. And I had most of the thoughts together that I was going to utilize in this teaching. And this past Tuesday night, I was uh, just thinking about some things, and I ran across a, a blog by one of my favorite Bible expositors, and he referenced this passage and said, this is the most difficult passage he's ever preached on. And I thought, well, that's encouraging. So needless to say, <clears throat> it's been a wonderful uh, labor, and I hope that the process transcends into your life through God's Word tonight. So let's pray and ask Him for help because we certainly need it. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We confess our need for You. We humble ourselves before this perfect and errant gift that You've given us, Lord. We thank You that only You could provide nourishment, not only in the moment that it was originally heard, but God, thousands of years later, the same nourishment is available to us and a completely different culture and world, and yet it's perfectly accessible and applicable, and we're grateful, and we receive it with joy tonight. So we pray you give us ears to hear and hearts willing to receive that we might be changed, Lord, according to your plan and purpose for us. And we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you remember, um, as Pastor Matt worked us through the ending of chapter 3 of Hebrews, that there was a conversation centered around the Israelites and their wandering in the wilderness. And the writer of Hebrews was making some connections. And remember, this is a, uh, this is a letter that was written to a small congregation that was suffering and struggling under great persecution and discouragement. Uh, they were getting barraged from all sides. And so in the midst of everything that is going on, we find these wonderful and probably words that maybe your eyes have, have run through as you've read the book of Hebrews in the past, but maybe not a place where you've stopped and really just hunkered down and build a fire and spent some time and thought. So let's do that. So here... The truth that the writer of Hebrews wants to convey through this section is that rest is at the heart of the gospel message. Now, rest isn't something that we normal, normally think about as being a, a central component to the gospel. If you are sharing the gospel with somebody, you typically don't bring up rest. You talk about the forgiveness of sin. You talk about the wages of sin. You talk about uh, all sorts of different aspects of the gospel, but typically rest would not be a part of the conversation. But the writer of Hebrews 
is bringing this forth for a very specific reason. Now, remember in Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And so Jesus was putting this idea of rest right out there in the gospel, and yet it's something that we rarely stop and take time and consider. So in chapter 3, we spoke about chapter 3 we spoke about the shocking reality that in spite of the remarkable and repeated miracles of protection and provision from God that sent the Jews brought the Jews through the exodus most of the Israelites went astray where are we now yeah, most of the Israelites went astray in their hearts and fell into unbelief And so that verse from chapter 3, verse 11, where the Scripture says, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That quote from Psalm 95. And then if you notice, the very last passage of Scripture from chapter 3, the Bible says in verse 19, So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And the they that... Hebrews is speaking about are the Israelites. The Israelites could not enter in because of their unbelief. And so what is this rest from which the unbelieving Israelites were excluded? This is where chapter 4 enters. And it begins, the, ver- the whole chapter begins with the word, therefore. And it's telling us that the author is about to draw a very important conclusion about the availability of rest and the failure of the Israelites to enter in and experience it. There's a connection. The, the, when a chapter begins with therefore, it is a culmination of what was previously said. And so we understand it's very clear what chapter 3 is about. And then we get into these words in chapter 4 that we'll just have to walk through slowly because they are a bit complex. Although the, the meaning is not terribly difficult to pull out once you make sense of it. So look at verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Now, the context of who we're talking about, as the writer of Hebrews is saying, let us fear, that we should fear that we might come short of it. The context, here's who we're talking to. We're talking to a group of people who have been exposed to the gospel. That's clear. These are people who have been in church. They have been taught the word of God. It is not new to them. Perhaps these are people who have grown up in the church. They were born into believing families, and so they were brought into a culture where the Word of God was part of it. Believing in Yahweh God was part of the culture of that family, and so they were exposed to it by birth. Maybe they're people who even were blessed by their presence among the people of God. We encounter this all the time in the Bible Belt where there will be people who are born into believing families. 
And the blessing of God rests upon that home. And because maybe there's a mother or a father who are a faithful follower of Jesus, uh, then the, the child comes up and presumes that they're a believer because they've, they've partaken in the blessing of God. But really the blessing of God has nothing to do with them. The blessing of God is, has to do with the people that's around them or the movement of God or whatever the case may be, being in proximity. A few years ago I preached a, a Sunday morning sermon called The Tale of the Tape and I went through the New Testament and examined all the people that were in very close proximity to the gospel and yet missed it. And oftentimes in a culture like ours, a lot of people think that because they've been around the Bible or around church or exposed to the gospel. But of these people who were exposed to the gospel or grew up in church or were born into believing families, but who have never fully and finally embraced Jesus in saving faith, and so, the, the opening verse of chapter 4, Therefore, since a promise remains for entering his rest, lest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it, is spoken to a group of people much like you. These aren't people that are outsiders. These aren't people who wouldn't have a concept of rest. These are people who assume that they're part of the rest, but who the writer of Hebrews is carrying a great burden for under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So God is drawing out. He's, he's confronting people in the context of belief and saying, you need to check yourself. God is saying to church attenders and to people like you and me who grew up in a Christian home, you need to be afraid of unbelief. He's saying you need to fear that. See, fear is something that we feel like needs to be rejected or weeded out of our lives and that there ought, be, there ought not be fear in our lives. Well, that's mostly true. We ought to fear God. That's the beginning of all wisdom. But we ought to fear unbelief. We ought to, we ought to fear being deceived. We've got to wrestle out our own salvation. We've got to ensure that we are what we want to believe that we are. We need to make sure because there's too much that hangs in the balance. Fear, failing to enter God's rest. Now you have to really think about how shocking these words are because of the audience, the setting. I mean, here these people are. Wouldn't you think a group of people that are being greatly persecuted for the gospel would have been weeded through and that everyone who remained would be genuine, almost like a refining fire? You would think that, and yet the Scripture is telling us that even in this situation and even in this context, there are... Goats among the sheep. That we should tremble at the very prospect of coming so very close and yet falling short. That it's a possibility. That we, like the people that Jesus addressed in Matthew chapter 7, might find ourselves 
at the end of this life crying out, Lord, Lord, to which he says, depart from me, you're a worker of iniquity and I never knew you. And they would then respond with a litany of things that they had done in his service and these righteous acts that they had taken upon in their own effort and endeavor to prove their validity as followers of Christ, only to find, no, you're not. We should, we should fear this. We should be afraid of finding that your heart has been hardened against God and his promises. So you can see that really this, the whole discussion in chapter 3 about the Israelites and the wandering in the wilderness was really just to prime us up for this conversation. It was just setting the context. It was, just, it was getting, getting us to begin to think about the things that we need to think about in order to really look within ourselves, examine ourselves. And be sure of the most important thing in all the world. Verse 2. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, nor being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Now, again, the them is the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. So the question that that begs to be answered is, well, what gospel were they hearing? What gospel were the Old Testament saints hearing? Was there, was there gospel for them? And the answer, of course, is, well, yes, there's gospel. First of all, the word gospel means good news. And so if we look just at the very specific context of what we're talking about, the children of Israel, as they moved up to the bank of the Jordan, the, the place of transition, and didn't cross over. They allowed fear to consume them, and they turned away, and they didn't enter in. So if we look at that context, was the good news preached to them? Well, yes, it was preached to them in Numbers chapter 14. And who preached the good news to them? Well, Caleb did. Joshua did. You remember when Caleb and Joshua came back and the ten spies began to ramble on about how dangerous it is and how horrible it is and how big the giants are and how no, we have no chance. And Joshua and Caleb spoke up and began to proclaim the gospel. And you know what they said in Numbers 14? They didn't say, you know, we should go in because, yes, they're big and they're scary, but God's promised us and we think that he'll do what he says he would do. We could trust him based on everything that we've seen and we should, we should go ahead and push through and do this. That's not what they said. You know what Joshua and Caleb said? They said, we can cross that river and we will swallow them up. There'll be no, there'll be no contest for us. They said that they will be bread for us, that we will eat them like bread. And the people turned away. It was as if two of 12 had this utter confidence in God and the other 10 persuaded the nation to turn back. But there are multiple other places in the Old Testament where you find the gospel. Consider uh, last 
Sunday morning, I, I referenced Exodus 34 because I was thinking about this passage in reference to Hebrews chapter 4. In Exodus 34, while Moses is up on the, the mountain with God, and the scripture says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children on to the third and fourth generation. And if you think about that, you think to yourself, now first of all, here is the Lord declaring about himself that he is a God who forgives sin. Now anytime that God is speaking about his willingness to forgive sin, it's the gospel. The gospel is the forgiveness of sin, right? And, and even though this is in the context of the Old Testament, it's still God saying that he offers a way for those who are willing to follow him. And even for those who are guilty and who turn. Because he goes on to say, but it's for those who hate him who will receive no mercy. And so there's the gospel. And so the writer of Hebrews says, listen, they indeed, the gospel was preached to them just like it has been to us. But you can hear the gospel. You can hear the gospel rightly taught. You can hear the gospel clear. You can understand the availability of the forgiveness of sin and the, the adoption into the family of God, and it can do you no good because merely hearing the gospel in and of itself will not save you. See, look at verse 3. For we who have believed do not enter that rest, as he has said. Then again, we are back to Psalm 95, 11. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. So there's the explanation of what we just read in verse 2. That merely hearing, comprehending, this is how I put it, the mental acceptance of, the fact, as a, of a fact is true will not bring rest to any soul. Acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and even Savior of the world alone will not give us rest. Remember, as we spent a year walking through the Gospel of John, we learned week after, it seemed like almost every week, uh, John, the gospel writer, was giving us uh, uh, insight into the, the word belief and all the things that believe means and how you can believe in so many different ways and on so many different levels. So what does bring rest? I mean, the demons believe what brings rest? There's lots of people who believe lots of things. Trust. Trust in Him is what gives rest for your souls. Trust brings rest. Now, as I thought about this, because I thought about, remember the context. The context is the children of Israel standing on the bank of the Jordan. The context is a group of people who turned away and didn't enter into the rest. 
So what did they believe? Well, if we go back to Numbers 14, I put this verse in your handout. Numbers 14, verse 4. Here's what they said. They said, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Now, look at how that sentence begins. Why has who brought us here? Was there any doubt in the Israelites' mind who had brought them there? Were they uncertain of who had fed them manna from the heavens? Were they, were they unclear about the pillar of fire, the cloud that they were following? Oh, no. They knew who brought them there. They knew the reality of God. There was no question about belief in God. None whatsoever. And yet, they perished. They didn't enter in. They knew how they got there. Why has the Lord brought us here? If they didn't believe the Lord had brought them here, they wouldn't have said it. Isn't it interesting? They didn't say, why has Moses brought us here? Because there's been times where they did that. They didn't do that there. They didn't say, well, Moses. No. They said the Lord. So they know. You're beginning to sense now why this is here. Why this text is so important. Because there's a lot of people who ought to fear unbelief who don't. And they ought to. And the reason they don't is because they believe, but they don't trust. And there's a difference between believing and believing and trusting. A huge and eternal difference. Here's the principle. The principle is is that faith is not and cannot be considered automatic. It never has been. It never will be automatic. But we live in a world that works so very hard to make it seem as if it is automatic. And just because we're thousands of years removed from this, the context of what's being said, people haven't changed. People haven't changed. And the context proves it. Think about our context. Think about the millions of people right now, as we sit in this room right now, literally millions upon millions of people in this country who subscribe to a faith system whereby at a certain age you go through a certain procedure And once you've completed that procedure, you're then right with God. And right now, tonight, if you or I were to have a conversation with them about the gospel, they would say, oh, I believe in God. And they're going to hell because they believe in an automatic faith that doesn't exist. You cannot, there is no such thing as at a certain age, I do some certain things and I become a Christian. It's impossible. It doesn't work. You know that and I know that, but yet there are tens of millions of people who subscribe to that very thing, right? Okay. So you see the importance of this? It's not just that there's the potential that even... Some of you in here tonight 
or deceiving yourself. Of course that's a possibility. But there's such a desire in us to circumvent surrender. To somehow formulate belief into a system that makes us feel confident and comfortable in what we've attained to. You ought to be petrified of that. All of us should fear unbelief. That's what the writer's saying. Think about this. If ever in the history of the world there was a group of people born into Christianity, it was the Israelites led out of captivity. They were the undiluted, unpolluted, hand-picked people of God. Forget denominations. Forget all the people tonight that are going to hell because they believe in a structure, a system. These were the people of God, hand-picked, undiluted, unpolluted. He led them out of captivity, just this group. So if you could possibly be born into a belief system, no one in the history of humanity had a better chance than they did. And the vast majority of them died in the wilderness in unbelief. So that means me and you would be foolish tonight to just presume upon salvation because of belief. That would be a very foolish thing for any of us to do. Verse 4. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place they shall not enter my rest. Now, I've said this before. I'll probably say this a hundred times in the coming six months. There is no one, there is no author of Scripture that even remotely comes close to the book of Hebrews in their complete understanding and wisdom of the Old Testament. It is unparalleled. The writer of Hebrews has an understanding of the Old Testament that is, is unmatched. No other book in the New Testament comes close. So don't be fooled when Hebrews says, oh, in a certain place, trust me. What Hebrews is doing is causing you to have to think quite deeply about what's being said here. So we're talking about how faith is not automatic and entering into this rest. And then he brings the creation story in. The seventh day in this way, God rested from all his works. And again in this place. Now, when God speaks of rest, we should take note that He calls it my rest because it's the rest that he himself enjoys. So we shouldn't be surprised that the scripture would draw us to Genesis chapter 2, although it does seem a little abrupt in the 
flow of the text, like all of a sudden here we are in Genesis 2, but you just have to buckle up and hang on. So I just began to wade into Genesis 2. I, was, I went back to the creation story with this issue of rest. Why has Hebrews slingshotted us to Genesis 2? What is this correlation between the Israelites crossing the Jordan into rest and our eventual transition into eternal rest? So I started reading in Genesis, and I was rereading the creation story, and something jumped out to me that I've never noticed before. Maybe some of you have noticed this. In the creation story, as God is going through creation, every day, on the first day God creates, the second day He creates, third day, fourth day, first day through the sixth day, all every day, at the very end, it says, so the evening and the morning were the first day. So the evening and the morning were the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day, except for the seventh day. It doesn't say that. Every day, it ends with there was morning and there was evening. But when you get to the seventh day, it doesn't say it. And I started to have an epiphany. I thought, hmm. So back to the context. Some of the members of this little church have become disheartened. They were panicking because they thought that the rest was no longer available. Now, Think about it. Just, just hold Genesis 2 on the back burner for a second. Let's move back into what we're talking about. Put yourself in their shoes. So here you are struggling to stay afloat, being persecuted for your faith, being bombarded you know, from your family financially, facing all sorts of physical torment and even death for following Jesus and abandoning Judaism. And so there would come a point in time before maybe some conversations would break out among us where we would start saying, you know what, maybe, I mean, this can't be right. Look at how horrible everything is. Maybe we've missed our opportunity. Maybe rest in God is no longer available. Maybe the door has been slammed shut. That would explain all the things that we're dealing with. You see, because they couldn't, they hadn't come to a, a full understanding of the detour yet so maybe maybe the door's shut so God says that his rest began with the completion of creation and continues on and on and is still available to all his creation so I started thinking is the reason that God's rest on the seventh day of creation 
Is the reason that that's referenced, does it have something to do with the fact that there's no morning and evening? And if, if the writer of Hebrews is trying to convince a group of people that the rest is still available, oh, the Sabbath in Genesis never ended. There was no end. Every day closed at the end of the day, except the seventh day remained open. I wonder if there's a connection. So this rest that's still available, the only thing that can pre prevent the promised rest from being received is distrust and disobedience, as proven in the context of the conversation about the Israelites who failed to enter in. Because it wasn't, dis it wasn't that they, they didn't believe the reality of God, it's that they didn't trust God. Their unbelief took over. There was no trust. You see, they believed, but they weren't willing to go across the river. They weren't willing to, there was no Jericho moment. You see, there was no moment where it came time to do something that didn't make any sense, like march around the walls, and they refused to do it. So it wasn't real faith. You see, there can't be faith without action, can there? Faith just can't be intellectual achievement. There has to be some response to faith. There has to be some movement in faith. You have to, you have to trust in something. It's like saying that you love someone. Without any action to back that up, those words mean nothing. So God's promise rests, stands. Anyone can have it. This is what the Scripture wants us to see. Now look at verse 6. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Now we're talking about those that failed to enter Canaan. Again, he designates a certain day saying in David, meaning in the Psalms, today after such a long time, as it has been said today, if you will hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. Psalm 95. Hmm. So the way we know that the door isn't shut is because David said all those hundreds of years later, today. Right? He referenced a day that David lived long after the original receivers of God's promise of rest. Right? In verse 7. So if they didn't enter in verse 6 because of disobedience, but again, the psalmist, David, says today, then God through David again issued the implied promise that through Psalm 95 that the people of God may enter his rest by not following the pattern of disobedience found in the desert story. So that's the point that Hebrews is trying to make.
But again, God's trying to cause people who have a level of confidence in something they ought not be confident in to examine themselves. And certainly I can relate to this because it's so much a part of my ongoing life, right? Looking out into the faces of people who are looking at me as if everything that I say matters. And yet in the middle of the night, I'm awakened by the thought of people who sit before and hear and listen and nod their head, maybe even amen and mark their Bibles and who do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And if, if it means that much to me, how much does it mean to the Lord? And so making the point that the psalmist says, if today you will hear his voice, he goes further. Look at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day. So now he goes back to Joshua. So see, we have, we have Genesis. Then we go to David. Now we're back to Joshua. In other words, we're just trying to sandwich this all in. He's trying to say, listen, Joshua did cross. So remember, in the beginning, they didn't cross with Moses, but they come back after 40 years of wandering, and they do cross into rest. So maybe rest is closed because once they crossed into God's promised rest, then therefore that was it. He's saying no. You read Joshua chapter 22 and 23, verse 4 of 22, verse 1 of 23. Joshua clearly knew that there was, this was only a shadow of what was to come. This wasn't the ultimate eternal rest. So in other words, long after people enjoyed the rest of the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, David says that God's still holding out. He's still holding out this offer to his people of salvation rest. Don't harden your hearts and you will enjoy God's rest. Canaan was a mere shadow. So look at verse 9. It would seem that, you know, the, all the places where doubt could squeak through the cracks are beginning to close. Rest is available. Verse 9. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Amen. What a beautiful verse. So remember, just think about what is happening. Don't, don't, don't hear these words as my words. Imagine that you're sitting in the context of, of believing people, in the context of faith, and God is so loving and so patient and so caring and so concerned for your soul that he is breaking out this complex and weaving together all of these thoughts so that, so that you might examine your salvation 
and take seriously what, what, what God would do that. Who does that? He does. So the universally relevant word of God, Psalm 95, declares that as long as it is today, there remains opportunity to hear his voice and obtain rest. Isn't that amazing? Today. So it doesn't matter what era, it doesn't matter what culture, what context, what time, what generation, what century, it doesn't matter. As long as it remains today, there's opportunity to enter into his rest. So the thought should be done, should be completed. But it's not. Verse 10. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Now what? So now we're back in Genesis 2 again. Where the seventh day has no end. It has no evening. It has no conclusion for the one who has entered his rest for the people who are genuine who have placed their faith and trust in God for those he ceased from his works as God did from his huh now how did God cease from his work in Genesis chapter 2? He was busy creating for six days. When he got to the seventh day, he was completed with the creation and he rested. Now, did he rest because he was tired? No. Did he rest because he needed a break? No. Did he rest for any other reason? Did he rest for any reason that pertained to him? No. Jesus makes it clear in the New Testament that the Sabbath rest was for man. It wasn't for God. Remember that? So when he rested, what did he do? He rested from what he was formerly doing. He rested from creating. There was no more creating because creating was done. So when you entered into the rest of God, when you came to the Gilgal moment and you stepped from condemnation into his marvelous light. In that moment, what did you rest from? The essence of entering into God's rest means resting from one's own work, just as God did on the seventh day. See, God, the Bible says God never sleeps. He never slumbers. He never, he's always awake. He's always alert. He's always... When he, when he rested on the seventh day, the universe didn't shut down. No. When you got saved, you didn't stop doing anything. You didn't shut down. What did you do? You kept doing things, but you didn't do what you used to do. You rested in the same way God rested. You entered into a new season, a new, a new life, a new time, a new creation, if you will. So when we believed, we finished with our works righteousness and entered God's rest. Now, why is that? 
Why does God use this terminology? Why do we enter into, what are we talking about, this this Sabbath rest, this salvation rest? What's going on here? Why are we fearing unbelief? Because if you're not, if you don't rest, then you'll deceive yourself into thinking that what you're doing is earning your way into glory. The way to know for sure that you didn't do anything to earn your way in is that you are resting. You're resting. You're resting in what he's already done. But we're not resting from everything because even in that, we still have a desire to serve Christ and do his work, right? So, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible says that we're God's poema, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which the Lord has laid out beforehand for us to walk in them, right? And so there's... So then if we're walking in good works, we're not resting. No, we are resting. We're resting from the works righteousness we used to do apart from Christ. That's what resting is. And so the scripture here in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 10 is saying that when we entered into rest, we ceased from works the same way God did hmm, in Genesis 2. Did he do, has since the completion of the sixth day, has God done any creating? No. He closed the book on creation, right? He's not making any more creation here, right? Yeah. But the Sabbath continues. What he was doing is over, but what he began on the Sabbath continues. The the door is closed forever open to this rest. So look at verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Now again, you got to just think with me for a second. Hold up. We're, We're resting in the same way God rested in creation, Yet it's really not resting because we're doing things. We're just not doing what we used to do because now we're told to be diligent. So now, how are we diligent to enter that rest? The diligence is not a way of works, but it's wholehearted devotion to trusting the promise of God that will persevere through whatever challenges life may bring. You see, that's what the diligence is. What we're diligent in, the way to be diligent in resting is to be diligent in trusting. You're resting in the fact that what God said is true and what he's promised to do, he's going to do. And that's what we're resting in. And that's what makes faith real. Faith is real when you walk in the reality that you're trusting what God said. So you're trusting him. So the opposite of perseverance is disobedience. And that's the sin of the faithless Exodus generation. So as I'm sorting all this out and thinking about Genesis 2 and 
I have page after page after page of where I've went painstakingly through word for word for every single word in Hebrews chapter 4. Every word. Word by word. And as I'm going through, I notice something. I notice that up until verse 9, every time the word rest has been mentioned, the common Greek word for rest is used. But suddenly in verse 9, that word is no longer used, and what's substituted is a word that shows up no other place in the New Testament. And when Hebrews first brought forth this word, it wasn't even a word that had been used. And the word means Sabbath rest. And I thought, wait a minute. So we've been talking about rest, and then suddenly we brought this new Sabbath rest into what we're talking about. And now I'm going, that's why we're talking about Genesis chapter 2. That's the reason that the Sabbath is connected to this. That's why we're having this conversation about rest and the Sabbath rest. And so now the author's going to join this concept. It's no longer just going to be rest. It's going to be rest plus Sabbath. And every time from here forward, wherever you see the word rest, it's this Sabbath rest word. So I started thinking about the Sabbath rest. I thought about Leviticus chapter 23, the Day of Atonement. The Scripture says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the Day of Atonement, it shall be for you a time of holy convocation. And you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that day, for it is the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. And I thought to myself, now wait a minute, have you ever noticed that before? Why on the day of atonement is the command giving on the one day of the year where the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies with the string tied to him and the bells connected to it because everyone's so afraid that if the bell stops shaking, they got to pull his body out because nobody's going in there except for the one person once a year allowed to do it who goes through all the processes of consecrating himself and making himself acceptable, still not knowing if you're going to live when you walk in. That one day, that one time when sin is forgiven, the Bible says on that day when he goes in, none of you do anything. Now, why does it say that? Why is on the day of atonement there no work allowed? Because the Bible wants us to see there's a connection. There's a connection between rest and salvation. There's a connection between When sin is forgiven, you don't do anything lest you think that what you did caused your sin to be forgiven. You got it? The point is that on the day sin is forgiven, no one's allowed to do anything. So that you don't deceive yourself into unbelief. You don't convince yourself that you're okay because of the things that you do. 
Wow. The connection between the Sabbath and the high priestly offering on the Day of Atonement. I thought, hmm. So they're to cease from work and be cleansed from sin. Hebrews says that in the same way you entered into your rest, it's the same way God did when he entered into his rest. So who went in? Who entered into the Holy of Holies? The high priest. And now we're to cease from work and be cleansed from our sin. So we don't merit resting by coming. You simply receive it as a gift. You see, there's, there's no merit. Because you didn't do anything. Because you have to rest. Because God cares so much about this. He cares so much for our soul that he wants to make sure that we don't lose sight of what's happening. Because we're all. Well, Jesus promised to give us rest. He didn't say that we'd pay you rest, did he? He didn't say that. He didn't say that you're going to get rest as a reward for what you've done. He said, come unto me and I will give you rest. Now, what did you do to, to earn that rest? Nothing. What did you do to receive that? No, you just come to him. That's all you do. No work. Because we all utterly are undeserving of rest. So what does all this mean? Oh, my goodness. On a night where we're going to take the Lord's Supper, can you imagine a better way to usher ourselves into this? A few thoughts about this rest as we bring our time to a close. God's rest is the soul's sigh of joyful satisfaction that comes from experiencing release from the anxiety and tension of constantly wondering whether or not I've done enough to gain favor with God. You see, folks, the way you know if you're in jeopardy is if you're languishing in, in anxiety and tension, you don't understand that you entered in salvation into rest. Into rest. That the, the rest of God is the relief that comes from never again fearing death as some dark and unknown termination. You know why? Because on the seventh day of creation, there was no end. Because when you enter into His Sabbath rest, it goes on for all eternity. God's rest is the comfort of knowing that even if everyone abandons you, you're never alone. See, He's always with you. Always. Because once you enter into His rest, you enter into covenant relationship with Him that He'll never break. He promises to never leave you or forsake you. This rest that comes from God is the reprieve of trusting the perfect and finished work of Christ for me, rather than trusting the imperfect and never-ending effort of my part to work for Christ. No. There's no work on the Day of Atonement. 
except instead of the high priest, it was the son who went in on our behalf. This rest from God is the calm that comes when you forsake the endless and empty legalistic demands of religion and find everlasting peace, joy, and hope in what God has done for you in Jesus.